doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, slave or free, whatever distinctions you make, we can say this, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'd like to speak to you this morning on that subject, the glory of God. I know that I'm going to fall short in trying to present or do justice to this subject. But I do want to try to share with you some some thoughts related to the glory of God. And like I say, I know this will be woefully inadequate because I'm a weak, finite, sinful person speaking to weak, finite, sinful people. And God's glory is infinitely beyond our comprehension. Nevertheless, the Bible does speak on this subject from beginning to end. And so we should try to understand something of what we're talking about when we speak of the glory of God. Why don't we pray here before we go on? Father, we know it will take a work of your Spirit to help us see something of what we're talking about when we speak of the glory of God. We pray that you'd help us send forth your Spirit that you might be glorified as we consider the glory, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was going to try to give a definition, but I don't think we can define the glory of God. I don't think it would be like trying to define God. But we can get some sense of what we're talking about by looking at the revelation that he's given to us of himself. And so that's what we want to do today. We're looking at a lot of scriptures. First of all, though, I'd like to say that I think it's profitable to make a distinction between God's essential glory, the glory he has in himself, he had in himself from before the foundation of the world, and his manifested glory, the glory he shows forth in and through and to his creation. Now I'm going to make, try to make some more distinction here between those two. His essential glory is so far beyond us that even to try to describe it is almost impossible. It would be like trying to describe the indescribable. Nevertheless, we get some sense of it because of what God has shown us in the scriptures. His essential glory is the glory he had from all eternity when in his triunity, the triunity of his nature, he dwelt all alone in infinite power, knowledge, wisdom, love, holiness, and beauty. In other words, before any created thing, before he created anything, there was, there was no heaven to declare the glory of God. There were no angels glorifying God, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There wasn't any, any earth. There wasn't an earth to be filled with his glory. Uh, and there were no people to glorify his name. There was nothing, no one, but God alone. 
as A.W. Pink said, during a past eternity or eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. His glory was known within his own Trinitarian nature, but nowhere else, because there was nowhere else, and there was no one else, just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God was glorious in his attributes of holiness and sovereignty and majesty and eternity and immutability and infinity, infinitude, personality, and many other absolute attributes, but these characteristics were not manifested or known beyond himself. Now, you're going to, you know, this, these thoughts are not just something you think about as you're eating supper. <laughs> We've we, we got to apply our mind and ask God to renew our mind to even think about what we're talking about here. So, these attributes of God were not manifested or known beyond himself. This is the glory Jesus refers to in John 17:5 when he said, "I glorified thee on earth having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was." God had a glory in the, there was a glory in the Trinity before the world was, yeah. an eternal glory, an essential glory. This is what we're talking about here. If God had chosen to, he might have continued in this pre-creation glory for all eternity, perfectly glorious in himself. He didn't need to make the universe. Now, try to think of it this way, and I'll underline, underline the word try. Try to think of it this way. How long did God exist prior to creation? Well, that's a mind stretcher, isn't it? I mean, the answer is forever. He, he existed forever before he created anything. And he was infinitely glorious in himself all of that Time, if you can call it time, all of that eternity. But he sovereignly chose to manifest his glory beyond himself, and he spoke his creation into existence. Suddenly, something of his eternal glory was manifested throughout this new universe he just created. So when we speak of his manifested glory, we are speaking of some display of his glorious attributes in creation, some outshining of his infinite, eternal, inward glory, that essential glory that he had from all eternity is being manifested now in creation. It is a external manifestation of the majestic greatness of his character in and through and to his creation. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about his manifested glory, his, 
his external glory, you might call it. I guess if you just want to have the two categories, you have his essential glory, what he was from all eternity in and of himself, and his external glory, that which is manifested in and to and through his creation. So, uh, I know those may seem like kind of abstract ideas, but really they're important for understanding this thing of the glory of God. His essential glory is his glory prior to and apart from creation. His external glory is his glory that is manifested in creation. Now what I want to do is look at some examples of this manifested glory. So we'll turn to a number of these. Uh, maybe the first one that would come to mind is, is Psalm 19.1. Let's just turn there real quickly. Psalm 19.1, you're probably familiar with it. <clears throat> where the psalmist says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. When you look at the stars, when you look at the sun, the moon, uh, the sky, the sunset, the heavens are declaring something of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In other words, the, the universe, the sky and the stars, the, this is God's handiwork. He's the artist, you might say, that had the talent to make these things. Uh, of course, we're talking about talent in a realm beyond what we can possibly think of. He, he doesn't just uh, make the different colors of the, the rainbow or the sky. He, he created them. He thought them up. Let's turn over to uh, Psalm 29. This is just one aspect of how the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Well, it says in, in verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then it goes on to talk about a storm. Lightning, thunder. Um, let's look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Now what the, what the psalmist is doing here is looking at a, a thunderstorm. Uh, probably out over uh, a pond or lake or something. Sea of Galilee, I don't know. Uh, but he goes on to say, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. So he's talking about thunder and lightning and the power that's displayed there. But if you look down at verse 9, it says, the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the force bare, and in his temple everything says glory. Now I think the temple here is not the temple that was the Jewish temple, but the whole, the whole of nature. Nature says, glory. Glory to God. This is part of 
what God has made, and it shows something of his character as we look around and even in the, hear the lightning and, and uh, see or hear the uh, thunder and see the lightning. So that's the type of thing, one type of manifested glory that uh, God has shown us. But you also see his glory manifested in miraculous events, especially related to, in the Old Testament, to the Exodus. So let's turn to Numbers 14, verse 22. He's talking about some of the things that God did there, some of the miraculous things that he has done amongst the people there. Surely all men have, who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. So he's taught, he says there was, they've seen something of his glory in all the miracles and events of the, of the Exodus there uh, with the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. Turn to Exodus 16. And verse 10. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. So if you remember there was a cloud in the day that they followed. Well that was, that was a display of the glory of God. At night there was a pillar of fire that they would follow. That was a display of the glory of God. You also see this type of thing in the, event, the events of the giving of the Ten Commandments there at Mount Sinai. Let's turn to Exodus 24, verse 16. It says, And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. So a manifestation, a miraculous manifestation of fire, lightning, there were earthquakes, there was all kinds of things there displaying something of the glory of God to these people. Uh, and then you see that especially related to the tabernacle that was built. Sometimes this is called the Shekinah glory. It was a special manifestation of glory related to the tabernacle. Exodus 40. Let's turn to that. Let's, Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So these are external manifestations that God gave to show something of his character, to show something of his essential glory to people. Um, maybe a couple more here. Numbers 20, verse 6. and verse 6. These type of things happened often in relationship to Moses and Aaron. Then Moses and Aaron came in, the, in 
from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So, um, just a, a sense of God working, God's presence in, in the midst of the people. Um, later on, you had the same type of thing in the temple. This was the tent that they could pick up and move around, but later on when Solomon built the temple, you have uh, a similar type display of the, the glory of God. First uh, Kings chapter 8 and verse 11. This is when the ark was brought into the temple and it said in verse 11, So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And just one more then, Second Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the, the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down in the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. So you have these, these external manifestations of God's glory pointing to something of his essential glory, something of, of who he is in himself, some, of, some attributes of God is being spoken of, his power, his goodness. They, here they are praising him for his loving kindness. Uh, and then if you come to the New Testament, even the, the announcement of the birth of Christ. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Just kind of setting the stage here for what we're looking at. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. This is the shepherds stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. So we have these, these manifestations um, throughout the history of Israel and just in creation in general, the heavens declaring the glory of God. But the, the fullest manifestation of the glory of God is, of course, in Christ himself. And he is more than a manifestation. He is God in the flesh. God come to earth. The, the essential nature of God being brought to this realm, this world, in the person of Christ. So let's, let's look at some verses on that. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth so when it says um, he 
he dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled. The tabernacle in the Old Testament where that Shekinah glory was was just a picture. It was just a type of Christ. And when Christ came, God tabernacled with us in the flesh. God himself tabernacled with men as a man. Now, there were many manifestations of the glory of God in the ministry of Christ. For instance, if you just turn over to chapter 2, there in John, in verse 11, this is when he turns the water into wine there at, at the wedding. And it says, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this was, there were manifestations of the glory of God through the ministry of Christ. But Christ was more than just a manifestation. He, wa- he was the glory of God here on earth. In Christ, we're told in Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The disciples got a little taste of some of this there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they talked about it later on in Second in Peter chapter one. Let's look at look at that. Second Peter chapter one and verse sixteen. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Here's the majestic glory that God the Father speaking to the Son, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Something of that essential glory of God was revealed there on that Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember the account, his face shone like the sun. His garments were whiter than any white, uh, white as lightning, I think it says. So uh, something of the great majestic, as it says here, the majestic glory of God was being displayed there before the... the, uh, disciples. Really the whole earthly existence of Christ was a display of the radiance of God's glory. God, from, from his birth to his death to his resurrection and everything in between, it was all a display of the radiance of God's glory. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us in the beginning there. Let's turn back to that. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And here's the phrase, and he, he is the radiance of his glory. God the Son is the radiance of God the Father's glory. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, that essential nature we were talking about 
that was there from all eternity. When Christ came to earth, he displayed that to people, the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory. The New Testament writer saw Christ as the great and final manifestation of God's glory, the one of whom all the Old Testament manifestations were just, were just types and shadows. Now, I think it's interesting to uh, realize that the word translated glory in the Old Testament actually is derived from a root with the basic meaning of heavy. The word in the Old Testament comes from a root that means heavy. God's glory is the weightiness of his character. He is weighty in such attributes as beauty. We're not talking about, you know, when we're talking about God, we're, we're talking about something spiritual here. We're talking about a spiritual beauty. He's weighty in a spiritual beauty, a moral beauty. He's weighty in might. In fact, he's all mighty. He's weighty in goodness. In fact, there's none good but God. He's weighty in knowledge. He knows everything. He's weighty in justice. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. In fact, his character is the standard of justice. He's weighty in holiness. He, has, he is absolutely separated from all that's impure. He is infinitely weighty in these characteristics and many others. His superabounding abundance of these and many other attributes constitute his glory. His weightiness in all of these attributes. That's his glory, you see. He has these characteristics in greater quantity and quality than we can even imagine. And this is what the New Testament writers tells us was revealed in Christ if we only had eyes to see. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and beginning with verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If the veil's taken away and you see Christ for who he is, you see the glory of God. Yeah. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
So we could say that God's glory is the incomprehensible weightiness of his essential nature, the infinite greatness of his character. And to behold even a little of this glory is to be overwhelmed. It's to be transformed. It's to be brought to worship and adoration. If you see a little of who Christ is, you will, of necessity, worship. In fact, I would say this, that the only reason we're not in total awe of the glory of God right now, right here today, is because we don't see things as we should. There's still a dullness. We're still seeing things dimly. Or even worse, we're not seeing things at all, spiritually. We're dead to these things. I'm sure I would not be standing here speaking about God's glory if God pulled back the veil of his glory right now. There wouldn't be any need for me to even try to speak about it. And I wouldn't be able to anyway. If it was like it will be when Christ comes again, there's not going to be anybody speaking about it. The, the saints will be praising God, and those who are not trusting in Christ will have a different reaction. Why don't we turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> this is just a brief account of what it will be like when Christ comes again. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in the middle of verse 7, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You're either going to be taken into that glory, taken up into that glory, or you're going to be separated away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and be marveled at among all those who believe. That's what you'll be doing. You'll just be marveling at this one that, you, that you're seeing clearer than you've ever seen before. Marvel at among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you is believed. When he comes again and establishes the new heavens and new earth, all believers will be worshiping and praising because they see him as he is. All the dullness is taken away. And you'll see so much more of the weightiness of his character. 
his incomprehensible worth, so much more of his glory. One songwriter put it this way, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. When those in the new creation fall down before their creator, they'll be saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. And when, though all the blood-bought multitudes are there before Christ, seeing him in his unveiled splendor and majesty, his glory, that worship will just be spontaneous. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So they'll be glorifying God. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's praising and worshiping God, recognizing his, his character, his attributes, giving glory or glorifying him does not mean that we add anything to his glory. Nothing. You can't add anything to that essential glory of God. It's merely recognizing and, and acknowledging it. And that's the purpose for which we were created. What's the chief end of man? But you know what? I think we're talking about something even more than that. We were created not just to recognize his glory, acknowledge his glory, praise him for his glory. We were, a- we were created to enter into his glory. And this is where it gets into the realm of things that we hardly know what we're talking about. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. The point I'm trying to make now is that we're not just created to glorify God. We were created to enter into the glory of God. This is only possible in Christ, but this is what God has opened up for us in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then if you turn to Second Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 17, similar thought. For, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. There's that idea of the weightiness of 
God's character. An eternal weight of glory is there for God's people. And what we're talking about is far beyond all comprehension. I just don't get much out of the thoughts of heaven that emphasize the streets of gold and all those kind of things, the pearly gates. What we're talking about, as far as glory, is far beyond all comprehension. If you turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I want to read a quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones here as we close. Do you know that you, a humble child, an ignorant Christian, who may feel you are more of a failure than anything else, buffeted by the devil, tossed here and there, do you know when you come to die, you will be with Christ, you will see his glory, you will behold it and become like him and enjoy the glory forever and ever. You and I, wherever we are at this moment, are going to look into the face of Jesus Christ in all his glory and be made like him and enjoy him through all eternity. This is his will for us, and because he wills it, it is absolutely certain. In fact, Christ prayed for this. Let's turn to John 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17, and verse 24. Christ, high priestly prayer here. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. He wants us, his prayer was that we would be with him for eternity to behold his glory. In Christ, that great prayer that Moses prayed way back in Exodus 33 is answered. Remember what he said? What he asked God, he said, Show me thy glory. Well, that prayer was partially answered there for Moses at the time, but it's finally and fully answered in Christ. This is what the gospel ultimately provides for all who will trust in Christ. Not only forgiveness, as wonderful as that is, but glory. Saved, sanctified sinners are actually able to be taken up into God's glory, into his presence. Doesn't mean you become God but you're, you're with him for all eternity. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority, before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.